Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on the podcast today is my Twitter friend, somebody I've gotten to know um, via Twitter for a couple of years, um, Sue Robbins. Welcome to the podcast, Sue. Thank you for having me. Um, Sue's going to share her story as a transgender um, American, and I'm just going to introduce a little bit about Sue from her website. Sue is um, Sue Robbins is a transgender, intersex, and pansexual woman. Originally from Rhode Island, she served in the military for 20 years and after retirement, moved to Utah in 2004. After arriving in Utah, Sue continued her self-exploration in recognizing and accepting her true self. During this time, Sue started performing community work before she was openly out to everyone. After transitioning to living her life authentically as a woman in 2014, Sue was offered a seat on the board of the Utah Pride Center, and her passion for volunteering her community blossomed. Sue has been involved in efforts largely focused on nonprofit management and advocacy for LGBTQ+, and specifically for transgender and intersex communities. She has also worked for nonprofit leaders in an advisory role and has been invited to participate in broader community efforts surrounding, um, surrounding over-the-air and print journalism, inmate health care, and mental health. And then her website, and we'll link to her website in the show notes, listeners. It's Sue in UT. So it's Utah, but it's just ut.com. Um, I love the different roles you're doing, and I love the awards you've received in our community, including um, in 2023, this year, recognized as in Utah, 40 Women Over 40 Awards. So I love that our state of you re- recognized you as a wonderful woman communi- um, contributing in our community. Um, listeners, Sue is not connected with the LDS Church. Um, I felt impressed um, that Sue's balanced voice in our community and standing up for trans people would be helpful for largely our listeners that are LDS. We've done, um, we did a podcast kind of like this, episode 166, Marsha Azumi, a mom of a transgender son, Aiden. Um, They're not LDS, but I thought they would help our community. And so I'm meeting Sue for the first time, listeners. Um, um, We've just known each other through Twitter, and she's taught me a lot about how to better support trans people. Um, I sometimes go to Twitter and I say, learn about trans people from trans people, not from cable news or not from cis people. So I'm trying to use my platform as a cis person to elevate the voices of trans people. I'm also like to just publicly thank Sue for her military service. She spent 20 years in the army. Um, That's probably several podcasts. You could talk about that in Germany and Okanagua, Japan and Ogden. I think that's how you connected to you, Tom, perhaps made it here. But that's a three-minute introduction um, that doesn't do you justice, Sue. And just welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Richard. It is a pleasure to be able to come on and speak and to be able to share my story with your audience because I feel like stories matter. Stories are how we teach people and hopefully bring some understanding. You know, one of my most favorite sayings is. Education brings knowledge, knowledge brings understanding, and greater understanding brings social change. And I feel like it's a process. Sometimes people feel like they either understand or don't, and uh, they live in just that moment instead of 
understanding that we learn things as we go along. And it takes time sometimes when it's new to us. So I'm very happy to be able to provide that. I'm very happy to be able to use my story in that. And, you know, on the on the awards, for example, um, getting awards obviously uh, is very uh, rewarding to someone. But what I love the most is the ability to give representation to a community and potentially to have a young transgender youth look and see and be able to go, that could be me. I can be visible. I can be recognized. I can be accepted as a woman. I can be accepted within the community. And that's the largest thing that the awards do in my mind or any kind of recognition is that it allows those who are coming along to look up at an elder and be able to see a path forward for them. I love that. So, so that's, that's rewarding to me because I've had kids and parents come up to me and say that it's made a difference to them to see me uh, be public. And that's, one of my greatest drivers. That's great. You can sense but, a really good heart and wanting to help other trans people in years use your station in life to elevate their voices and bring more understanding. Love you to share your story and um, how you, you know, just coming to be your authentic self. And um, that might be helpful for listeners if you want to start there or wherever you want to start. Be glad to. Uh, yeah, I was born in Massachusetts. My father was a Navy officer. So that's where I got my military service drive from. Uh, but we moved around in the beginning, obviously. So being born in Massachusetts uh, was a very short stay that I don't remember. But I lived in places like Virginia, Cuba, and Guam while my father was still in the Navy. And then when he went to retire, uh, we retired in Rhode Island. And that's where I basically lived from sixth grade on. So that's how I feel is my hometown and my area growing up. And I'm actually have a high school reunion in a couple of weeks and I'll be able to go back and enjoy my memories of my friends again. What part but, of uh, Rhode Island did you live in? I lived in Coventry. So it's uh, Central West. Okay. And so it's like a very large, small town. Uh, it was, you know, as many of us who grew up in smaller towns, you know, we had, knew everybody, you knew every road. It was that type of a place. Yeah, you do. You knew the trails in the woods as you went around. So uh, great memories as we all have growing up. And it's going to be great to go back and see it. But there, um, so our family was Catholic and I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy for many years. I belonged to the Catholic Youth Organization where I did volunteer work. And I was in the Knights of Columbus and became a third degree knight. And for those not familiar with the Knights of Columbus, you might think of the Rotary Club or the Lions as you know, a social organization. And the Knights is like that. It's just tied to the Catholic Church. So... Growing up, I knew something was different about me, but back in the 70s, it was hard to have a word put to it because the word transgender wasn't out there. You know, very rarely you heard the word transsexual, and the only real visible person that was out there was Renee Richards, who played professional tennis and fought for her right to be able to play professional tennis as a transgender woman. So I really didn't have role models. I really didn't have a lot of words, but I had my feelings. 
And when you look back at that, you can start piecing it together as you get older. But in that time, it was just confusing that something inside of me felt different. And, you know, I would try to explore that through clothing, uh, those types of things, and uh, and then have shame and guilt by the fact that I did it because you felt it was wrong because of the way societal norms were. So as I graduated high school, I decided to go in the Army. And it's interesting because I, at the time, I didn't think much of it, but uh, transgender people are represented two times more than cisgender people in the army. We go in at two times the rate. Interesting. Uh, some of that is I have I have known some transgender women who went in to man up, so to speak, to try and fight their feelings. And it didn't work, obviously, because this is internal to us. For me, it was more about just having a job. I went in with my best friend. Uh, my first uh, career field was tanks. So I got to be a tank gunner. Uh, I went to Fort Knox for my training, uh, did assignments in Texas and Germany, uh, back when Germany was still two countries. So I served right on the border between West and East Germany. And it was an interesting experience, but I learned quickly it wasn't something I wanted to do for life. It wasn't something I was going to grow into. So I was able to on a re-enlistment, get into a field called satellite communications, which is just communicating over satellite, just like we do for our TV and Sirius and those types of things. But it was back then, we didn't have all that for the home, but we had that for the military. So it was a great technical field to get training. And through this time in the Army, so I did 16 years in that field before I retired right at 20 years. But through all this time, um, I'd still have my feelings, but I'd try and bury it. Obviously, you can't explore your feelings much when you're transgender and you live in barracks. And uh, I went through one marriage that didn't work out and then remarried and kept it from them because of the embarrassment that goes with it and the shame. So I went all the way through my time in the Army, uh, retired. We stayed in Georgia for a few years because my father was terminal and living in Florida. So we didn't want to come back to Utah right away. That way I could be there to help take care of him. But that was about the time that I sat down with my wife at that time and told her about my feelings and said, I really, really felt like it was time to explore it, to understand what I had been fighting throughout my life. And she was okay with it. But because of the way I felt I was going to go forward, I offered boundaries on what I could do, what I wasn't going to do. Now, this is not something that I think every transgender person can and should do, because sometimes we're in such a moment that uh, it's better for us to just be able to move forward at our pace without being able to have boundaries. But I wasn't in a bad place. I just needed to explore it. So I was able to offer that to my wife. And to her credit, she took that. And then as I moved along, uh, each time I would go to her and say, you know, this boundary feels a little constraining right now. How do you feel about if I move the boundary out to this place? And it was usually about clothing I'd wear or uh, anything I'd do to my body, like hair removal. Those are the types of things that were the boundary. A great example was mustache. I used to wear a mustache and I always had the impression that she loved it and didn't want it to go away. So towards the end, that was one of the last boundaries to go away. And what was interesting is I 
mentioned to her that I wanted to go ahead and get rid of it. She says, why haven't you gotten rid of it before? <laughs> I'm like, you always want it. And she said, no, I just don't want you to keep growing it. If you get rid of it, just let it be gone and be done. So I had a misunderstanding. So it's interesting how that can work with the boundaries. But um, but even throughout all of this, you know, life still goes on while you struggle with those things. I had started a great career that I'm still doing here in Utah with a government contractor as an electrical engineer uh, to keep myself busy. I always loved bowling and I actually became a pro bowler. Wow. Uh, never good enough to be on you know, what you see on TV, but good enough to be able to compete at a high level. Uh, sort of like if you follow baseball minor leaguers, I was probably comparable to a career minor leaguer. Wow. It was fun and it was kind of a nice goal. You know, yeah, the professional bowlers card and everything. So I kind of worked on distractions in there, like many of us may do while going through this progress. So around 2010, maybe 2009, I met some friends that I knew online, but met them in person and they had a group that was getting together just to meet people like me. We were calling ourselves cross-dressers sometimes because we hadn't figured out who we were and we wanted to just be able to um, dress and express ourselves and then meet and have a night together. So we were doing this at the Utah Pride Center when it was on 300 West was the first location. And we were able to put this group together. And at that point, too, was also around the point where I, where I would start going out of the house, presenting as Sue, start exploring um, how people would react to me and how I would feel going out. I had a friend that was doing it, and she took me out the first time, and it just kind of exploded from there. That was That was the point that I knew that this was the right path and that I had to be authentic to myself that I had to stop burying all of that. Uh, so it was a, a explosive moment for me. And within a couple of years, you know, I started going to a event down in Vegas called Diva Las Vegas. And it was mostly people who were either cross-dressers or transgender, but hadn't transitioned. And But we'd just go down there and vacation together and do some prearranged events as groups. And that first week was when I took the first step to going ahead and saying, I'm going to be Sue for the rest of my life. Uh, that's when I decided because the experience of being me for an entire week was so rewarding and fulfilling. And it made me so happy. It was feelings that came up of joy that I never had before. And it, you know, when something feels right, you go with it. And that's exactly what had happened during this week. So that's when I started my transition. And I, you know, I went through therapy because everybody told me we had to. And at times it was kind of interesting because I'd look at my going and in, into one of my sessions. And me and the therapist would sit there quietly and he'd go, So what do you need to talk about? And I'd be like, I don't know, everything's going good, but I'm here because I'm told I have to be here. Um so it's interesting how that goes. And I got my diagnosis of gender dysphoria so that I could move forward with my care. And in 2014, so nine years ago, I wrote up a plan and I went through uh, went through steps through that plan uh, from starting from about April through October. It was how I went through it. I 
had in there when I was going to come out, the different family members. I went ahead and set up a trip to go visit my mother in Florida so that I could tell her. And she was amazing. I was a crying mess trying to tell her because <laughs> I just felt like I, I had taken one of her babies away. But she just hugged me and loved me. And um, you know, it was within two weeks. I wasn't even fully transitioned. It was within two weeks on the phone that she was calling me Sue, even though I had made the change permanently. She recognized that that's who I was. And she made the change immediately. And it was so rewarding. And um, so in August of nine years ago, this month was when I did my legal name change. And then I came out to the world on Facebook, all the people that weren't family and close friends that I'd been doing throughout my process. And and then the 1st of October was the last step was showing up at work as Sue. Uh, From there, I could tell everybody it took me about another four and a half years to change my name on everything. The Army was the most difficult because they're not built for this at the time. So I was going through sending records before boards to get all my records set up. They changed my name and they forgot to change my gender. So I had to go back and do it again to get the gender changed. So it's a very long, arduous process for us. You call Dominion Energy and say, I need to change the name on my bill from X to Sue. Do I need to send you my legal name change? They go, nope, done. But then you go to the army and you spend years pushing through or you or maybe a school that you're trying to get the records changed. So it varies quite a bit. Uh, and it can be a hard process because it feels like you're always in it and always trying to go through. So when you see people who have transitioned and it feels like they're still stressed out about transitioning, it's probably because they still feel like they're doing it because our systems aren't all built uh, to support us yet. But from the very beginning, things went very well for me. Uh, I was instantly recruited to be on the Pride Center board by a friend that I knew that was on the board. And I pushed back saying, let me have six months so I make sure life is going to be good. Um, And then I went to a board meeting about six months later, and I walked up at the end and said, I want to apply. And I had my iPad in my hand. And I was showing it as like, here's my LinkedIn with my thing. And he went ahead and connected with me on my iPad. And he said, okay, you've applied. (laughs) Interesting way to do it. Uh, The very next month I was interviewed and I was offered a spot on the board. So I, I looked at that as what I was going to do to kind of pay my dues. I mean, every one of us probably wants to transition and then enjoy life as the person we should have been, because especially when you've gotten older, like I did, the years have passed and you want to be able to grasp the time that you have left. But once I got on the Pride Center board, it was a bit of a snowball effect after that, uh, because first we won marriage equality a few months later. That was in June of 2015. And we had a press conference at the Pride Center And I came walking in to be at it. I was still the new person on the board. And one of the board members came out and grabbed me and said, they want to talk with you in the back room. And I went back and there was people like Jim DeBacchus and Troy Williams, all these leaders in the community, Kent Frogley, who was the chair of the board at the time. And they looked at me and said, we'd like to have a transgender person speak at this press conference too. So we want to know if you're willing. And I had never spoke before in public other than as Sue. 
I'd done it once before as an introduction to my brother-in-law when he was inducted in the Utah Bowling Hall of Fame, but not as Sue. So it was a new thing. I'm just getting used to being out in public uh, regularly. And so I've said yes, but now all of a sudden here I am. They're like, let's go. And they're walking out in front of the cameras and have had no time to think. So as everyone was talking, I was last of nine people. And I came to realize a lot of the narrative in the questions, not necessarily the speakers, but in the questions and things I had seen walking in were people saying, do we still need pride centers? Do we still need uh, all these things we've done or have we achieved what we need? So while eight people before me were all praising that we got marriage equality, and I fully understand that because they had fought for years, this was their battle, I got up and said, I'm going to let everybody know I love that we have marriage equality. That impacts me. But we are not done yet. This is just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many things we need to do for so many members of our community. And uh, it. At the moment, probably I thought after that, maybe that wasn't the message I should do. You learn messaging over time. And that may have not been the message everyone was ready to hear. They wanted the moment of joy as opposed to a warning. But obviously, as we look at our environment right now, it was um, it was correct thing to look at is that we do need our pride centers. We do need in circle. We do need equality, Utah. But that was the start of people lifting me. And there's certain people that I appreciate for what they've done for me. Uh, Ken Frogley, the chair of the board at that time, listened to me a lot on my ideas about the Pride Center. He, at every event, would introduce me to important people so that my network would grow. And he had a lot of belief in me. And I really appreciate Ken for that. The next board chair we had was Mike Aguilar. And Mike was as a nonprofit guru. And I could see that just in my months there. So when he decided to run for chair, I immediately signed up to run for vice chair because I wanted to learn from him. I wanted to absorb from someone I looked up to there. And in the first year of the Pride Center, we re-envisioned a lot about the Pride Center. We made the decision to sell the building we had and find something bigger maybe uh, do some remodeling so we could get the maintenance costs down, those types of things. We we rewrote the mission statement. So Mike kind of led into a lot of things that after I became the chair for two years behind Mike, I just took the ball from him and kept going. Uh, as two years of the chair at the Pride Center, I was, we, we had hired Carol Gennady during Mike's time and we were able to do things like get moved into a new building and fix it all up. We were able to move out of debt during Mike's time. We relied on some debt at that time. And then we moved it to where we ended up having a high cash flow uh, during my time. We had a great board we assembled. We rebranded. It was just a very great time of progress. And during that time, I also joined the board of Transgender Education Advocates of Utah, and kind of cautionary did it with them saying, I've got a lot of work to do with Pride Center. I'm the chair, but I'll gladly sit on your board to help in the board meetings. But outside the board meetings, my time will be a little limited. And then even before I quite got off the board of the Utah Pride Center, 
I ended up on the Equality Utah Advisory Council because I kept going up and working with Troy Williams of Equality Utah on legislation and policy. So I just flowed right into that. So I kind of touched all three major organizations that supported the trans community and leadership passion there, which was wonderful to be able to do that. And uh, and during that entire time, my voice just kept getting lifted in different ways. The first time I gave a regular speech, it was Troy Williams who brought me in and had an event in late 2015. And we went to the Impact Hub and it was kind of interesting. Their layout is uh, they're one of these places where small businesses can all be there and have a shared space. And the middle is completely empty. All the walls were glass and the lights were way down for this event. So it was kind of dark. You couldn't see the glass as you moved around unless you were really careful. And when they told me it was to get ready to um, to speak, I was like, you know, you told me it was going to be a half hour from now. Let me go hit the restroom and I'll be right back. I started heading over to where I knew where it was. And I saw all these people congregated. I saw the glass door open at a 90 degree angle from the wall and I saw a gap. So my mind goes, that must be the doorway. And I walked through and smack right into the glass wall. I left an imprint of makeup that looked like the Optimus Prime symbol on the glass. So I kind of stumbled back a little, went around the door. And by the time I was getting back there, the blood was rushing out of my nose. I broke my nose. No. So I'm I'm sitting here with a a light colored top on that's turning a little pink. And I go in the restroom and try and clean it up and stop the bleeding. And it takes me a few minutes to get it there. So I come walking out with a, a bloody towel on my nose, trying to stop it. And this was the rear of the entire area. And Troy was on the front going, Sue. Sue. <laughs> Thankfully, someone else was supposed to talk with me. So they put uh, put Weston Clark up to talk and I worked uh-huh. my way up there and I got up and talked. And it was since it was my first time, I had tried to memorize everything I was going to say. And I completely forgot it because of everything that had been going on. And I just winged it. And then I learned as long as I have a good thought in my heart and I have a few bullet points in my brain, maybe all I have to do is talk from inside and that's the best talk I could do. And that's what I did that night. Uh, talking about people, you know, our trans youth at home and our gay and lesbian and bisexual other queer youth at home with their families at night and how they're parts of our families. And we need to embrace that and realize that they're all part of us. And that's the way my talk went. And at that point I started being asked to talk more and it, became very interesting because I don't feel like I should be a public speaker, but I want to be able to share my heart, my education with everybody. So I almost never say no because of my saying about education. It's if we don't have the education, we're not going to learn. So it's been an interesting run for me as I go through this, because as I've worked with Troy, Troy would tell journalists to go to me whenever it was a transgender-related bill and interview me because he felt like my voice should be the one speaking on those issues since I was up there. And the journalists have all come to know me. A lot of legislators have come to know me. And hopefully I've built a good reputation with them so that my voice is heard because that's what's important. If you want to fight and push people away, then those people will never hear the message you have. 
But if you reach out and try and be kind and gentle with the education, it can be firm at times when you tell people that's just not right. You're hurting people when you do that. And I want to tell you why we can be firm. But the rhetoric we have going on these days, we need to back away from. We need to get away from the extremes and come in the middle. And the middle is where we can make things happen and educate. And I believe this is part of where my reputation is starting to help me is, you know, the people, politicians get attacked. It doesn't matter the bill. It doesn't matter what the community is. They get hate mail all day long. So if you're a person that's coming to them on an issue they're trying to learn about and you're not giving them hate, you instantly get some level of voice. Now, you may be pushing against their preconceived biases and you may have a hard path, but you're at the table. And if you're not at the table, you may become the feast. So you always want to be at the table. And this is the biggest thing I've taken away from it. So when it comes to my community, I really am going to continue being there for them because I realize how hard it is for most to be marginalized all day. When you think about when you're the, especially the newer marginalized community that people are learning about, you go all day potentially being discriminated. You might have to have two jobs because you have trouble getting a good paying job. You might be a single parent. You go through all these things and it's hard at the end of the day to stop and defend yourself and educate people. So those of us like me who are in a stronger, maybe more privileged place, we need to step up. We're the ones that have to carry the ball for the rest of them. And I, I go back to... Uh, I spoke once at a group where they asked me to come out and do a 20-minute presentation on the trans community. And then at the end, they had snacks and drinks. And I was talking with everybody who came by, and I had a mother come by. And she asked me for help. She lived in a specific area, and her transgender boy, who was five, was going to start kindergarten. So she asked how I recommended she interact with school. So while we're there talking, uh, up comes a man with this little boy. And this boy had a faux hawk, and he had a little leather pilot's jacket on. And the mother looked down and said, I'm going to use a different name, but she said, Bob, I'd like to meet you to meet Sue. And I looked at him, and I said, hi, Bob. And he kind of got his arms going like he was, oh, uh, proud of himself. And he goes, I'm transgender. And I leaned over and I go, Bob, I'm transgender too. And you could see his eyes just open up and his mouth got all round. Like I've never met someone who is transgender before. He was just, <gasps> just this big inhale. So then I held out my fist for a fist bump and he bumped it and exploded it. it he was just so adorable. And after I walked away from that, my mind was, I want to remove every barrier for transgender youth in a way that Bob never experiences the barrier. That's my goal. And I've worked to that. And unfortunately, we haven't been able to achieve that because Bob is older now. And we see what's happening between healthcare and sports and other things that are up. But I still think of Bob all the time when I think of all the transgender youth. This was a transgender boy, five years old, 
firmly knew who he was, and he was happier. When I talked to that family, when they recognized he was transgender and affirmed him, they saw a significant change in the happiness of him and the joy he had. And I know most people struggle with conceiving that a young person may understand their gender identity, but it really speaks to the way it's innate to us. It's not learned. It's inside of us who we are. And that's the part that I hope over time we're able to get broader acceptance of, because once we do that, that's when we accept the transgender community more. That's when we can have more appropriate policies and laws. And that's when we stop having a lot of the uh, the rhetoric and the the attacks that we have. It's I understand for most people, this is a new concept, and that's where education comes from. But it is who we are, and we want you to understand. We want to take you along the ride with us. Uh, we want this to become something that is more common knowledge and that we can just then uh, fall into a place of understanding and caring. So is, this has taken me on quite a path. You know, I currently spend all my time on the advocacy side, both with Equality Utah's advisory board and doing things independently like the website I have. But I've broadened some of what I'm doing because I feel like we just can't do it all through policy and law. So I serve on the KSL community boards. That way I get to work with journalists on everything they do. It's not just about I'm not only a trans contributor, I'm a member of the Utah community, and I'm able to work with them on how we perceive news in general. So it's a great way to step out of my uh, my zone a little. And additionally, the Huntsman Mental Health Institute has a campaign they're doing both nationally and in every state called Stop Stigma. And it's effort is to try and remove stigma around getting mental health care. So it's going to take a while to do, but there's definitely stigma in the trans community. There's definitely stigma in the LGBTQ plus community, and there's stigma outside of those. My life has been greatly impacted by uh, drug addiction and alcohol addiction, not to myself, but among my family. Um, I lost a son three years ago to yeah. his addiction. And the stigma around those groups is great. So I want to contribute in that because it brings more of me to the table. It's a, a very great goal. And it's something we really need in our community. So sometimes people think of me as, you know, the, the woman who's transgender. And, uh, and there's more to all of us than that. It's just that being transgender is the part that there's a lot of divisiveness about out there. But in the end, we're all people, we're all contributing members of our community, and we're all important, every single one of us, whether we're transgender, gay, lesbian, an addict, or someone who experiences none of that. Uh, we're all community members, and we all matter. Sue, so, I'm just really moved by your story. Um, I'm so glad I reached out to you, listeners, and I love just your personal story and then how you've stepped in these public spaces. I'm assuming if I talked to you 20 years ago or 10 years ago, you would never would have believed that 
I would be in these public spaces. And I love these public spaces are, are broader than, you know, I love Equality Utah and the other organizations you mentioned, but I love where you're just at times just this wonderful contributing woman in society that has much to give on your KSL Community Advisory Board, um, 40 women, over 40 Utah Ward. And so, yeah, you're trans and you talk about that, but you also kind of talk about, you know, I'm just a woman contributing to society and this is part of my story and it's a part of my story that often is divisive in our vernacular right now, but it's who I am. You share it with so much grace and kindness. Um, I wrote down a few notes and I've got some questions for you. I love this story about um, when you were, I think, in Vegas and it was the first week of your life and you just wrote, said, being me for an entire week just was transforming. It made me happy. And I'm glad you had that experience and just on your journey. I love the way Troy Williams, who I really respect, um, and others elevated your voice because I recognized sometimes trans people get behind um, gay men's stories. And I've sent, learned a little bit of tension you, that sometimes those stories, which are still part of the marginalized group, um, are sort of the only stories sometimes we hear in the LGBT community. And, and um, <clears throat> so I love the way at times people are recognizing that and lifting your voice. I'm sorry about your son who passed away from addiction, and I, I'm sorry he's gone. And, um, and I love that you're in these other spaces. I I forgot about Renee Richards. That actually rang a bell. I'm in my 60s, and I do remember that story. Now I've I haven't thought about it for decades, but I do remember that. That's probably my first experience too. Um, talk about if you will your marital status. I don't know if you're still with your wife, or if you want to talk about. You were doing a really good job of boundaries and just how you, so some people, when they become their authentic self, they're in, they're married and they're trying to navigate that. And some of those marriages work for a while and some work for a long time and some don't work. I don't know if you want to share any of that part of your personal story with our listeners. Some of it. Um, so the marriage I had while I went through transition did end, but it ended well a few years after my transition for reasons other than that. and. Uh, for her privacy, I'd rather That's not fine. discuss those. But um, but we still are friends, and she was supportive throughout, very supportive throughout. Uh, we never had any issues with my transition as far as uh, our relationship went. She was kind and caring and very open-minded about it. Um, I think there was a little bit of, um, you know, and there always will be, of a period of adjusting in her mind that she'd have a wife instead of a husband, that she may be viewed as a lesbian in a relationship, but she, because she's um, because of the, the person she is, she moved through that pretty quickly, but unfortunately there was other reasons. And so um, we, we ended up divorced and I've since remarried. Um, I, an interesting story is during my transition, before I was fully out, my daughter reached out to me and introduced me to a friend of hers, and her friend needed help. This friend had moved to Idaho, up in the Idaho Falls area, and her realized her son, who was about eight years old, I believe, at the time, uh, and had been suicidal, they found out that he was a boy. 
um, not the girl that they thought their son was. And so my daughter heard the story and said, let me connect you to my mother and see if she can help you with resources. So I was sending resources that I knew uh, links to her. And then I was like, you know, from online, there's this person up in Idaho that uh, might be able to help me find other resources that are local instead of just broad. So I reached out to her. She gave me some names and resources and I passed those along. And that mother and that father let their son start school that year because this was happening in the summer as a boy. And so I went up to visit because I have a child in Boise. So I said, let me go over to Idaho Falls. Let me meet this family in person. And they were willing to meet. And then I can go see my daughter. And I also decided I'd meet this friend in the middle because this friend that I had never met in person was in the Sun Valley area. So I went up to Idaho Falls and here's this loving family. Uh, They had seven kids, a few of their own. Then they adopted two sisters. And um, and then they adopted two others and they were in the process of adopting a boy from China who had, um, I believe, Down syndrome. And they were working on that where they were going to fly to China and adopt and bring him home. Totally this large, loving family. And it was amazing going there and just being around them and seeing the love for their son uh, and bringing him along. And so then I stopped over in Sun Valley Uh, to meet this friend who had helped me out with links and our friendship just blossomed and now we're married and we've been married for five years. Uh, Teresa is amazing. Um, She's done so much for me and is there for me a lot. She has a a love of photography and wild horses. So she's a lot more of an introvert than I am. We're kind of opposites in that. She just likes to go out in the desert and uh, get away from people and be able to spend time photo- uh, taking photographs of the horses. But um, you know, it's unfortunate when marriages fail. It's not uh, what we look for in our design of our life, but I have continued to find happiness and so has my ex. So uh, I hope that continues for both of us, obviously. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. And that's a, your daughter's a matchmaker. Way to go. Um, and I love that you have this relationship with your former um, spouse and you're in a marriage and, and marriages sometimes I've just learned listeners when a marriage fails, I try not to find the backstory. I just try to be kind to both partners and wish them the best. And we've had podcasts with people that have come out and have been able to come out as trans LDS couples and have continued to make their marriage work and some don't. So there's not just like one story in this space as Sue knows well, there's you know, to want, know one trans person does not get you to the finish line as a cis person. You've got to hear, you know, there's so many different stories. So that's part of the purpose of this podcast. Uh, we did a podcast. Um, I reference this quite a bit whenever I do a trans podcast. Um, Cammy and Dave Martin, episode 631. They have a transgender son, Levi, who died by suicide. They're an LDS couple in Massachusetts. And in his suicide note, he talked about he was terrified of what society was was saying about people like him. And he was turning 18. And that fear of a society full of vitriol and rhetoric. And Sue's got tears in her eyes as I'm talking about this because she knows these, these people. She's probably been to funerals of transgender people that have died by suicide. Please call, text, chat 988 if you're suicidal. 
Um, that's a big focus on your website. I noticed the very first thing you talk about is being emotionally safe and getting help. Um, but it's just a heartbreaking story. And those parents were doing it, everything right. Um, and they understood sort of what was going on here and were supporting. Um, but, it, it, you know, I look at what our own church's website, I look at sometimes at what the vitriol that comes through politics, not every politician's like this and not every politician on the right is like this, but some are. And I sort of think they're creating fear to get elected and, you know, they are coming after you and kind of these vague comments that create fear that are really unsettling for me or zeroing in on a marginalized group that Sue has probably had lots of wounds from the political rhetoric directed at people like her. But Elder Rasband on our church's website, the question is, how can I support someone who identifies as transgender? And the answer is not, they're not transgender. The answer is not, this is fake. The answer is not, they're confused by Satan. So the church doesn't have any of that language on its website. Elder Rasband just simply teaches. Um, Elder Rasband taught that people who experience transgender feelings, quote, need to be encircled in the arms of their Savior and know they are loved. So often the Lord calls on us. He expects us to be his welcoming loving arms, we need to encourage their friends to do the same. So, you know, that's the most direct quote from a senior leader of our church on how to treat trans people. And our church's website does not get into the political rhetoric, and they're not getting there. So I just invite listeners to get their talking points about trans people, um, not from cable news, but from trans people. And um, I'd love to talk about, I don't know how to frame this. Um, I've always felt that the bottom of the iceberg, I'm not a therapist, listeners, but I've always felt that for someone who is feeling trans, they need to get to the bottom of the iceberg. And the bottom of the iceberg is sort of what's going on below the law underline. The top of the iceberg is sort of how they're manifesting. And and the bottom of the iceberg, if it's long-term gender dysphoria, then just like it was for you, then then transitioning over that person feels as best is the right path for them. Um, but there are some times I'm a little nervous, and Sue would have some thoughts on this about where the bottom of the iceberg isn't long-term gender dysphoria, and it may just need be a short-term need to belong to a group or to express themselves in a way um, transitioning that does not reflect being truly transgender and they go too fast. Um, and so I've been okay kind of slowing. I've always invited people to go slow, work for a therapist and be thoughtful of this. Um, but I'm worried at times that some go too fast and it really isn't long-term gender dysphoria and they regret. But then I worry those stories get weaponized, Sue, and um, people that have detrans um, share their story and sort of invalidate all the people that have trans have transitioned and it's authentic to them. So there's a couple questions in there. I guess the main question is what advice do you have for parents of youth that are identifying as trans? Um, and wondering, is this bottom of the iceberg, long-term gender dysphoria, or is this something short-term? So maybe or wherever you want to start, that's kind of a long statement oh, with a question. No, there's a lot of great things in there. <laughs> so the first thing I'm going to hit on a point is uh, we typically struggle in silence in the beginning. So when we come out, and particularly for younger individuals, there may be a bit of, this is me, get on board. 
And it's a very shocking thing to a parent to try and uh, you've had no education, you've had no experience, maybe you maybe met a trans youth through some other means, but your child is telling you, love me and I need you to support me right now. And my advice in that moment is love your child, sit down and say, we'll work through this together and I'm here for you and I love you. But as far as your education, I would recommend going to a group like a Mama Dragons or uh, the Dragon Dads for the education, because your child's probably been through so much and is still thinking about whether they'll be bullied or whether they have a good future. So being questioned by their parents to try and be educated by their parents beyond what do you need from me can be a lot and may feel like. Uh, you're not on the path with them. And we know you love your kids, so we know you're on that path, but it's all new. And your kid figured it out on their own over years. And the light just came on for you and you're trying to look around the room and decide what's in the room, so to speak. So I, I, I empathize with that very strongly. It is hard to be in that moment. And that's why I think these outside organizations are very valuable for the parents. So that way you have someone who go to people who you could say, they said this today. I don't know how to react to that. And then people share their experiences with you and maybe some guidance if they're, if they're a professional. But as far as uh, going back to some of what Richard says is it is difficult uh, outside, not understanding everything that a transgender person has available to them to know if something may be too fast or even too slow. Because when we talk about um, suicides or anxiety or depression, sometimes it's because it's too slow. So this is why I encourage that there's a therapist involved. Uh, when we look at the documents and how some of the wordings weaponized against us, uh, the DSM-5 is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual that therapists use. And in it, it talks about how we're supposed to get to a point with a person where they're saying they're transgender insistently, consistently, and persistently. Because when we get to that point, that's when we work through who we are. Because a little hard to fully understand who you are if you're not expressing it to everybody else. There's a little bit of uh, going out and experiencing things to kind of fine tune where your where your mind is about yourself. So it is a process, and that insistence and consistence and persistence are the things that say we've been through that process. So in the DSM, there's some statistics about. How many kids don't uh, identify as transgender after being through therapy because they didn't persist, which is one of the three things I'm keying up on. So the people who are trying to talk against us say, yeah, see, kids are always saying they're transgender and they're not. And this number says so right in the DSM. But in reality, that number in the DSM affirms what we say proper care is and how we feel. Because when a young child of yours is trying to work their way through the process, they're not going to be potentially consistent. They may have not hit persistence yet, and they probably hit a little insistence, but without the clarity that will lead to those other two.
So that's what we want a therapist to be able to help them through. And there's a little bit of time that comes with that because it's really about being perceived by others on how you feel on the inside. So as you try and pull that out, that inside portion of you out for everybody to see, sometimes you miss the mark a little and you adjust to it. And then when you settle in, then you have that consistency. So I know that may sound like a lot, but it is a path. And for some, we tell, like when I transitioned, it was, this is me and that was it. And there was no adjustments to it. But for others, there's a little bit of exploration that happens to understand that they pulled who they are outside correctly so that people treat them in the way that they perceive themselves. And so it could be quick for some and it could be longer for others. And that's why having therapy in there to help go through that process, both for the youth and the parents, I feel is very important. So that way we get to that point of insistence, consistence and persistence. And we've known we've hit a good spot. And then that youth can say, yes, I am transgender. I'm insistent about it. The DSM-5 is really helpful. I've I'm just barely aware of that. Um, I think, if I can remember, that um, this has sort of shifted from a mental illness to a medical issue. I'm using the right language, and that, if that's correct, that helps frame it up for me yeah. in a completely different way, that this is not like a mental illness. This is a medical issue. It's diagnostic. And I've always thought that research and therapists and accurate um, diagnostic work and statistics are a friend to help us be able to better support other people. So maybe you can just help us understand that. No, that is absolutely true. So in the DSM-4 and earlier, they would tend to call it gender identity disorder. And disorder was a bit stigmatizing because it's not a disorder, it's who I am. DSM-5, they moved to gender dysphoria because the dysphoria that you might experience of people not perceiving you for who you are can cause negative mental health outcomes like anxiety and depression. So if you haven't transitioned, you're going to have that dysphoria. You go in and see a therapist and you go through the process I was just discussing to where you're insistent, consistent, and persistent. And then that Transition is the medical care for gender dysphoria, is what it really is. So if you truly have that dysphoria and you meet those three markers, then transitioning is the right thing and it's the medicine you need to then get outside of the dysphoria and continue your life in a happy and healthy manner. Talk about, I get messages and I'm sure for every one I get, you get a hundred in this space. Talk about therapists. You know, parents, and this would be largely an LDS audience, may recognize I've got a kid that's working through something here, gender dysphoria, and I want to get to a therapist that's, you know, some therapists, they're criticized for being too affirming and sort of a personal agenda. And I'm not, I hope I'm using the right language, and some criticized for would never support, um, you know, recognizing that the child could have gender dysphoria. So there's kind of these, and a parent wants to get a therapist that's probably the right balance. And I think a therapist motto is do no harm and let people self-determine. And I'm trying to 
instead of invoking my own agenda here, I'm trying to help this person make the very best decisions and let them self-determine and give them the tools to do that. So I'm not a therapist, but that's sort of my take on that space. Um, so if any, yeah, help parents find a good therapist, Sue. <laughs> It is a tough subject. So I, I'm with you on uh, help people self-determine. If we think about therapists, and we can think about it with doctors the same way, is they go to school and they get all this broad education. And then once they're out, they come up with situations that they didn't get when they went through med school or through uh, university. And that's part of continuing education and research. And in our case in Utah, we actually have a group, we have multiple groups that um, they come together and they intentionally support the LGBT community. So they they do training to make sure their people are kept up with current times. So those are the LGBT Affirming Guild of Utah and Flourish Therapy. And then, of course, we have the Utah Pride Center in Circle that have mental health therapy. So in those, they should be teaching as a therapist uh, getting the right balance for the situation in front of them. As I said, some may be uh, move faster than others and others may need to move slower. But um, I agree too with your self-determination statement is this year we had a bill come up that uh, was initially going to allow conversion therapy. And if we look back, we actually got in 2019 we were able to ban conversion therapy through a rule through the Department of Professional Licensing. And there were some people that were unhappy about it because they couldn't do conversion therapy. And I don't really uh, have sympathy there because conversion therapy had some really strange practices. But there was also some that said, I feel like my ability as a therapist being hampered in case this person isn't LGBT. I don't feel like I have the tools to guide them. I can only push them forward. So when this bill came out this year, it was worded towards that, and it actually was going to allow conversion therapy again. But in the heart and the intent of trying to come to the table together instead of casting stones, Troy Williams and Marina Lowe at Equality Utah went and sat with the people who were running the bill because there was a few people behind it. And they brought in uh, those legislators and other outside groups, including therapists that had concerns, and we reworded the bill to address everyone's concerns. And the bill became a ban on conversion therapy, but in the sense of it allowed the therapist to take the person in therapy through self-determination. Instead of trying to say being gay, lesbian, or transgender or bisexual is bad for you and trying to eliminate that as a behavior, because it's not just a behavior, it's internal to us, it's innate. Uh, it was, let me take you through why you're struggling with it. But And if you're on a discovery path, let me take you through the discovery path while you tell me where you're at, because it's self-determined, not me trying to push you forward, but me just trying to get you to open up and explore your thoughts and your feelings. And that's what that bill allows. Uh, so it takes away the conversion therapy part, but it doesn't. Um, enforce any kind of push that someone might perceive as in there, which is what we want out of therapy. We want therapy to allow people to work through their feelings and come up with the best solutions that they're coming up with, not the therapist. A therapist is a guide. They're, they're there to help you figure out those pieces inside, but it's got to come out of you. And so 
uh, I just want to keep enforcing what you said. Self-determination is very important. And that's how we get to the insistency, consistency, and persistency, because we don't get there unless it's self-determined. If you feel like someone's pushing you, if you feel like there's um, there's some other reason, you're never going to reach that point of insistency and consistency and persistency. And therefore, in our standards of care, you have not yet quite been affirmed as being transgender. You're someone who's exploring. You're someone who's figuring it out. But um, but as far as the care, the standards of care, which we have international standards, you need to reach that point through self-determination and self-expression. Um, you're really good at this space, obviously, <laughs> not only with your own story, but um, I love the work you're doing at the legislature. Troy has been a master bridge builder, and I know um, there's wonderful people like you, and not everything goes your way at the legislature. Um, and there's so much tension in the legal, sort of having to write laws in this space. And there were some laws written that I know a lot of people that are trans and parents were uncomfortable with because it took tools away from parents to provide the care to their kids. And I, as I read a lot of those comments, um, I like in general going slow with kids, but also like parents being empowered as parents with minor kids to have the tools that they feel they would imp would implement, you know, the care is probably a better word than tools to do what's right with their, for their kids, especially if their kids are suffering and have met sort of the DSM standard that you're talking about. This isn't just a, a sort of an abstract thing. This is, you know, their standards. And so I'm aware of the tension there and that there's pain that exists with current legislation that's been enacted. And I hope and pray that we continue to bring more light and understanding to this space and better support kids that feel and not feel, but it's who they are. To your point, Sue, this is they're part of their identity. I don't know if you want to talk about any of that that I just shared. But it is a tough path right now for our community. It's You can talk about it all day long, and most of the community has been impacted by the bills. They're just going to feel the hurt, and it's, it's hard to understand. We try and look at it in the educational space. You know, we're trying to educate legislators who some of them may perhaps have people in their ear who are misrepresenting information and telling them things that aren't necessarily true. For instance, we have healthcare that is set by the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and many other medical associations in the United States. But some people feel like they're politicized so that they can't trust them on transgender healthcare. But they go to the, their standards when they have cancer. They go to their standards when uh, they're in ERs and ICUs, when they have uh, infections. All of these standards, even ones that are newer than transgender healthcare, because we've been documenting transgender healthcare for 40 years. We've had it for over 100 years. There's a lot of things that are newer than that that we take at face value and accept. So, there's it shows a bit of the division we have within our country and perhaps our world right now that we can accept all that medicine, but because something is for transgender youth and we have all this rhetoric and division out there that we can't accept that and these people must be politicized. 
And it's going to take us some time to walk through that. Part of that is if you look at the arc of time for gay and lesbian and bisexual people to get marriage equality, which impacted the transgender community too. Uh, there was this arc where it was very tough and we were getting all this pushback. And then after we got over the top of the arc, we started to make progress. Utah was the first state to actually uh, overturn a marriage uh, ban, marriage equality ban, when we had the decision in 2013, I believe it was, December. You know, we get over that arc and then we start going. And then in 2015, we got marriage equality. So the transgender community is going through the same type of arc, just decades later of learning and understanding. And once people knew more people who were gay, lesbian, and bisexual, the acceptance level went up. And we're going to see that with the transgender community too. We've seen that in some scale over the last 10 years where the acceptance of us has come up. I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast that are accepting of transgender people and get it at some level. And 10 years ago may have been entirely different. 20 years ago, I may have been entirely different. Uh, it, there is an educational process here that is painful to have to go through, but I want to help us go through it. So it's entirely unnerving for anybody who's directly impacted our youth. Uh, we see states where uh, families are moving out of them because of health care taken away or other uh, transgender rights. And we have see other states that are calling themselves sanctuary states. So this is a really tough thing for our country to be in. And it still amazes me in this time that for all the things we have that we could do that will improve this country and maybe being more loving and caring for people, it feels like that making transgender community a political issue is not where we should be. And I hope I'm saying that as a person in general and not just as an activist, you know, we have so many things we're divided on. Why do we need to go after kids who are just trying to get by and survive? Um, it's it's one of our discussions of the day. So I'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot more as we go forward. I'm sure people's feelings will move around as time goes on. I just hope we start to come together instead of being a 50-50 split, which is what it feels right now. It feels like there's a really hard split of pro and con, and it's going to take some talking and some time to get through this. Yeah, every time you speak, Sue, I just learn and I'm moved. Um, you have a really big picture, but you also recognize people are suffering today. And so I know your heart's heavy for them, but you have this vision of I love this arc of time and I love the parallel to gay people. And I do sometimes go back and read what we used to say about gay people and, um, and what we don't say, we don't say those things anymore. And I think it's to your point, there's representation. We have, um, gay people serving, serving in the military and in all areas of life. And we have proximity in our families and our professional life and the rhetoric around allowing same-sex marriage <clears throat> and some of the negative things that would happen in society, I think we're past that. And we just recognize these are two people that want to be in a monogamous, committed relationship. And yeah, I'm LDS and I recognize that's outside the teachings of our church. It's not outside the human family and our ability to love and support people and, and not use fear-based narratives to sort of get, you know, a following or get voted in or 
I just think fear-based narratives to move your political agenda forward are very effective, but very unfortunate because it's often on the backs of marginalized people. I love, um, we had a podcast that's going to be released a few before you. And on the podcast is a woman who's a stake release society president. She talked about how as Latter-day Saints, it's easy to love people that are just like us, that um, root for the same sports team, same political party, goes to the same school, um, or citizen straight, um, same color. And that's probably true of, it's not just an LDS thing. It's probably true of all of us naturally, generally as Americans. But if we really love each other, we've got to get to know people that are different than us. And that takes proximity. It takes getting to hear their story. And that's how my heart changed. People are hard to hate, close up, move in. And um, <clears throat> that was my story with gay men in my church assignment as I just listened to gay men tell me about being gay. And I realized, I called the trap of unearned opinions. I should have no opinions about trans people um, until I meet a lot of trans people. I have no standing in that space to say anything. And I shouldn't getting getting my talking points about trans people from yeah, I'm being hard on cable news right now. Not all cable news is bad and not even all people that are sort of in the right space uh, in right politically are um, vitriol against LGBTQ people. But there is a segment in that space that I'm really uncomfortable with. Um, a mom, I've read this quote before, listeners. It's Monica Phillips. Um, she has a transgender son and she says, I don't believe Satan's work is to deceive people into being LGBTQ. Instead, Satan takes these precious children of God and tells them they're worthless. He tells them there's no place for them. He resides in their shame. Satan also resides in our fears, knowing that our fears will hinder ability to truly love. His goal is to tear families apart and drive people away from Jesus Christ. He is succeeding, not because this group has been deceived, and are now gay or trans, he is succeeding because keeping us from coming together as the body of Christ and loving with pure Christ-like love. So I, when I read that, listeners, I thought that was because we, I believe, listeners, that Satan's real. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes um, the fear is created in an inappropriate way to divide families and tear people apart and is directed at marginalized groups. And my, and I've shared this, and I want to get Sue talking. I don't want to take her time, but my wife and I had the chance to go to the road to Jericho. There are no trees. It's just this barren area of Israel. And we looked over the, the, the road to Jericho and the Good Samaritan. And, you know, I, rec- I just heard that parable through the eyes of transgender people on how Jesus elevated a group of people that um, Jewish people thought of less of. And um, to have then the Good Samaritan be the person that was the hero of the road causes me, and I've had some trans people that I've looked at their behavior symbolically on the road to, Jer- road to Jericho, and it's heroic. Um, for the work they're doing, the way they're serving, the grace they send to other people, at the same time as receiving barbs. And so I hear Sue, and I think you're the Good Samaritan. You're the person on the road to Jericho, physically helping people at times, but with your work doing that. So, you know, I think these parables in the New Testament um, can help us know how to better support marginalized people and see them the way God sees them. So there's a religious tone, obviously, to this podcast and using some of um, those parables 
um, to better understand a marginalized group of people. More things you'd like to share, Sue. I, I, the other thing I'm comfortable about, and you could weigh in on this too, is I, I recognize some people detransition, and that is probably an authentic story to them. But I'm uncomfortable, and so I'm, that story to me is valid, and I'm completely fine with that. But I'm uncomfortable when I see a political gathering or a video, and that detransition person sort of legit delegitimize everybody else's story in the space because of their story. And they get weaponized in a way that I think is very unfortunate. So you could comment on that. You're aware of that more than I am or anything else you want to comment. Or if there's anything I said you're not quite comfortable with, you're welcome to comment on that. <laughs> uh, I'd like to comment on a couple of things you've said. So first off in, in my mind is, you know, the Lord put us all here to be who we are. and not to all be the same person. Love, it, to me, is not taking people we want to love and making them the image of ourselves, but it is accepting the beauty and the variety of what that person is and all those people are that have been placed on this earth with us. It's, it's not about change. It's about acceptance. It's about caring. It's about embracing. Um, and there's many out there that just want to change us to be like them. And that is not what I call love. And there's no compassion in it. And there's no caring. Um, on detransition, that it is a difficult subject. It, we, the detransition numbers are in around the range of 2%. But when you take that 2% and break it apart, there's large elements there of people who detransition because they... They ran into so much discrimination that they're trying to get to a place where they can still get a job, where they can stop getting that discrimination. I've known out of all my friends, and I have a pretty good connection <laughs> with the trans community, I've known of one person who detransitioned and maybe another who did because they just kind of fell off the map and I never saw them again. Uh, both were experiencing high levels of discrimination. Uh, the one that I know detransitioned, backed up and said, my environment was not ready for this. I'm going to take a little time out to restabilize me and my life and then I'll be back. And sure enough, less than a year later, they retransition and then they're living very happy and authentically. So when you look at those numbers, we need to recognize there's certainly not 2% of people who transition and said, this wasn't for me. I, I am not transgender. There's a mix of things in there. And the, the difficulty of our environment impacts that. But uh, to even tail back to a discussion we were having earlier, let's say someone goes to a therapist that is not um, educated and that therapist doesn't recognize that enough to refer them. Uh, and we've seen this in one detransition person who, in the course of two years, went through transition puberty blockers and hormone therapy, which is a faster pace than I would recommend for anyone. It's not abiding by the standards of care. So someone did not support her properly. And she has been shocked, and I'll say it that way because we believe she's paid for this, to almost every state and to the uh, United States uh, Congress to testify about her story. And then when you hear it, you start to realize that it's scripted because you can tell when someone's reading a script, and that's what it is. 
And so she gets a lot of pushback from the transgender community about what she's doing. But I want to have compassion for what's happened to her. She's hurting us, and I wish she was not testifying. But it goes to speak one is they found one person, and they have to fly her to every state and take her to the U.S. Congress, which speaks to how uncommon this is. You know, you're always going to have a, you know, a bad knee surgery, a bad back surgery. And in this case, she got bad trans health care. So it, it does happen. And I don't want to say it doesn't. But if we took everything that didn't have a 100% outcome, we'd have no medicine. So I'd like to turn to a little compassion for her because she was guided wrong. She got care that was too soon for her, and then it didn't work for her. And now, in my mind, she's being used for a political narrative. And this can't be good for her mental health that was priority in a precarious position. And now she's being used to hate a community and that community is lashing out at her. So when we talk about the detransitioners, we need to understand where they come from. We need to be kind and caring people about their situation. For some, it's because they needed to get a job or their family had left them and they wanted to get back with their family. So they're not disavowing their being transgender. They're just going back in the closet. But for some, you know, if we'd stop trying to stop the health care and look at it more educationally and say, do our therapists have enough tools when a transgender person comes in that either they understand what to do or they can join an organization to help them understand what to do or they can do a referral because this is the way therapy and medicine should work. You go to your general practitioner and give them something that's a specialty. They shouldn't be taking care of you. They should be referring you to a specialist. So we need to get out of this realm of, um, of where there may be bad care and we need to make sure that there is a good path for it, just like we do with all medicine and all mental health care. And I'll add to that, one of the things that we recognize in our stop stigma efforts for mental health care in Utah is we have a significant deficiency of available therapists. And this impacts not just transgender community or LGBT community, it can impact those who end up homeless, it can impact those with depression and anxiety issues just across the board. You know, the difficulty in getting in to see a therapist is harming our communities in Utah. So we do need to perhaps encourage more people to get into the field. Uh, you know, we talk about how colleges have gotten expensive. You know, hopefully as we go along, we find ways to improve this because um, when we look at how we might not have all the right amount of therapists available for the transgender community, we can expand this thought to everybody. It's not a transgender issue. It is an everybody issue to be able to have that support, that caring, and that guidance that we need to be able to move through our lives. It's a terrific segment. A lot of grace there, um, even to people that are harming at times the trans community. It's sort of an insight into your heart your good heart, Sue, and your real balanced, um, long arc voice that's really helpful as a bridge-building voice, um, but still standing firm for who you are and your needs and the needs of trans people. Um, it's a delicate line to walk. You would do a really good job of it. 
Um, you're changing you. a lot of lives and, and changing a lot of hearts and helping a lot of lives. With time for just final comments, if there's anything you'd just like to share in closing, Sue. So for those who are learning, I thank you for learning. It's a process. It can't all come at once. And there's a lot of divided information out there. So it's hard to process as an independent person uh, what is what is real out there. So I'd really encourage anyone to start with, if you can at uh, all possible, get to know a transgender person and understand their experience. Because that emotion can help guide you through what you might look out there and find as good and bad information. Um, Our longstanding organizations usually aren't failing us. You know, American Medical Association isn't all of a sudden going to approve some type of healthcare that is not backed up by science while they have science behind everything else they do. So, When someone says they're politicized, stop and think about our divided environment and make your own self-determination on whether you really feel that they could be politicized over one issue while not being politicized over everything else. But the biggest thing to me that I think we've lost throughout a lot of the country is leading with our hearts. Um, some of this, so much of this is leading with politics instead of our hearts that I think we've created harm by making bills come through very fast to try and stop things just because we don't understand them. So we're not stopping long enough to hear people, to understand who's impacted, and then try and learn about something that's been in place for decades. Um, like I said, this healthcare has been documented to international standards for over 40 years. So this isn't new. It just became something in our politics over the last three or four years. Uh, and I, I believe that's mostly because of increased visibility. We're coming out more over the last decade. It's we see role models like Laverne Cox. And you know, even in Utah, some, some youth may see my visibility and say, I can be out. And then everybody goes, what's going on? All of a sudden, there's more transgender people. This can't be true. And there isn't more transgender people. There's just more transgender people that are being visible to you is what the truth is. We've been coming out because we've started to get some systems in place that support us. And we start having others that we can see. And we start having groups we can connect with. And when you have those things, it feels safer to come out of the closet. I waited till I was 53 to come out of the closet because the word transgender didn't even exist when I was young. And all these systems weren't in place when I was in my 40s. Uh, The people who came out during that time went through some extreme battles because it was hard to find a doctor and there weren't legal uh, interventions for them. So if we take all that in context, we realize that there's more of us coming out of the closet and now there's a political pushback. And so if we stop and try and think about kindness, consideration, and have we educated enough to be able to understand? And if not, how can we? we Listening to podcasts is a great way. And I thank Richard for this opportunity because we hear stories, we hear the impacts. 
Sometimes you may find someone who's LGBTQ talking at an event, and that's important. But I always believe that personal connection is going to be the greatest impact. Knowing someone who's transgender is going to give you that personal interaction. And because you know them, it actually starts to connect more. So that's where I think we're at and how we're going to move forward is the more people who know someone who's transgender, the more we're going to be able to move forward and come together. Thank you, Sue Robbins. Um, you're terrific. I'm so glad that I act on my impression to reach out to you. Your Twitter's great, but your sto- your personal story and your work is even better. I love that this idea that your feelings existed when you were younger, but the word trans didn't exist then, but it, you, who you were and your true identity existed way before we had vocabulary, the DSM-5. And so I totally agree that um, just more people are able to accept who they are, which is, I think, listeners, a good thing. I think that's part of the beautiful, needed diversity of the human family. And and as we get to know people that are different, us, those sort of fear evaporate. And Sue, you're helping us do that. So listeners in the show notes will link to Sue's Twitter. If you're on Twitter, that's kind of a tough platform right now. Um, but I'm hanging in there. Um, and we'll also link to Sue's website. Um, great website with lots of good resources there. And we'll also link to our latest, just a link that has all our podcasts at listen, learn, and love.org. There's over 700. So they're in, in categories and there's a category called gen transgender, non-binary, genderqueer. And there's a lot of stories there. Every story is a little bit different. Um, but you, if you want to continue to learn, hear more stories. So Um, This is Richard Osser and Sue Robbins signing off for another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.